Okay, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, once again, we do ask for you to come and help us, Lord. Um, there's no way we can fully grasp the greatness of who you are, but we pray that you would give us more than we have tonight by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. So, when Adam chose to sin by rejecting God and God's one commandment, when Adam's heart chose something other than God, which was the fruit and ultimately when he chose himself over God, one of the results was that his heart shrank and this was passed on to mankind. Man's heart shrank and lost the capacity to know and embrace the transcendent God the way God intended. Sin shrank the heart to be consumed with a much smaller sphere, the sphere of self. Sin shrinks, wraps our life to be centered on self. And in salvation, we are given the spirit who enables us to see beyond ourselves, to see and glimpse the majesty of the one true God. And yet, the sin nature that lives in our flesh is still with us, always pulling us back to see ourselves first to view things from our limited perspective, and to make ourselves the judge of all things. Sanctification is the process where the Spirit of God, using the truth of God's revelation, His Word, His written Word, begins to reshape our thinking, our desires, and our will. So through obedience, we become transformed more and more to the image of the one for whom we were made, the one that we love, that we treasure, that we gaze upon. 2 Corinthians 4 says that as we behold him, we are transformed into his image. But this only occurs as we recognize and submit to the authority of reality and truth as God has commanded and revealed to us in his, world, in his word. Now, he has revealed himself in measure through his word, but because he is infinite and transcendent, that means beyond us, there are things that he has revealed that are hard for us to understand. How can the finite grasp the infinite? How can the imperfect fully understand perfection? So what are we to do with this book and the things that are hard for us to understand? Should we run from them? Many people do. If we do, we're running from God. Should we try to categorize these difficult truths? Now, this may work to a point, but the truth is we're always going to come to the end of ourselves and our limited understanding, and we're going to get to truths that cannot be categorized. And while godly teachers are God's gift, we must never substitute them for the truth and authority of this book. So, what are we to do? Study to show ourselves approved and to be like the Bereans in Acts who took Paul's teaching and searched the scripture to see if his teaching was founded on truth. That's what you always are to do. So if while studying you come away with questions or things that you don't understand, Please know you are not alone. The sanctification of your mind is a process. Some things we will never know in full here, here on earth, but we want to press on to know as best we can 
and then rest in God's word by faith, trusting that God will make known to us those things he chooses to reveal. So I'm going to give you the key. This is the key. The key is not what you don't understand about God. Don't get hung up on those. The key is not what you don't understand. The key is, are you living up to what you do understand? That is the key. Are you living up to what you do understand about God? I introduced tonight's lesson this way because we are entering into some mind-stretching teaching. Now remember, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful or profitable for the man or woman of God to be thoroughly equipped. And as we enter into this section of Romans, I want to remind you that Romans is written as an argument. It is written as a reasoned and connected argument. Okay, some people believe that 9 through 11 is like a parenthesis, that Paul gives us all the doctrine of salvation, and then in 12 on, he tells us how we are to live, and this is just a parenthesis. However, I don't think that's true. I think that we need to look at it as part of Paul's reasoned argument. And so here's where we're going to pick up. We finished chapter 8 with that amazing, it was all about assurance, and that amazing that even though we have suffering, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And it was all to give us that foundation of that in that relationship to God, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to live in uncertainty. So therefore, the question may arise, if nothing can separate us when we're God's children, his chosen people in Christ, what about Israel? They are God's chosen people. And if you become God's by faith and it's open to anyone who believes and puts their trust in Christ, it seems that God's promises to them have failed because most of them have rejected Christ. You can see where that would be an argument. And so what's at stake is not just where Israel stands, but do we have any trust? If God didn't stay true to his word for Israel, how do we know he's going to stay true for us? You see how that flows from the assurance of where we are? And so as Paul deals with Israel, it applies to us as well. Now, that problem may seem remote to us because for, for centuries, the, the Christian church has been Gentiles for the most part. But this was a real problem for the Jewish Christians because remember, he's writing to a church made up of both, and he's wanting to bring unity for them to realize that they are unified for who they are in Christ, not their Jewishness or their Gentile culture, but who they are in Christ. So Paul begins this section with a lament over Israel, the Jews who had not accepted Christ. So what Paul does is deal with this dilemma about whether God's word has fallen. That is the key question that he's dealing with. Has God's word fallen? And so... In chapter 9, just as a little overview, what he's going to do to address that is to redefine Israel. Not ethnic, but the true Israel. In chapter 10, he's going to deal with the fact that it's because of Israel's disobedience. And then in chapter 11, he's going to talk about God's long-term strategy about Israel, how she will be reinstated when the full number of Gentiles come in. But the core of these chapters in dealing with Israel is to show and defend the trustworthiness of God and his word and his promises. 
all the mind-bending concepts that we're going to wrestle with here support that truth. So don't lose sight of the key truth here. So here's your first truth. God is true and we can trust his promises. God is true and we can trust his promises. So what does Paul put forth as the foundation for this? And what he puts forth is the sovereignty of God. Now, to be sovereign means you're supreme in power, you have supreme dominion, and that you're efficacious in the highest degree. You can accomplish anything because nothing can thwart you. That's what it means to be sovereign. So let's start in chapters 1 through 5 with the lament. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So, you see that Paul had great grief and longing for his own people, and I, I want to tell you that this is significant um, because if we go back or we go over and you don't have to turn there, but let me go over to Second Corinthians. Let's see here. Um, 11, 24. We've used this before in talking about all that Paul suffered. The Jews hated Paul. And just a brief glimpse of his life and how the Jews treated him. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, um, I guess I need to get out of 1 Corinthians and get over to 2 Corinthians 11, 24. He says, um, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked and spent a night and a day in the open sea. And then he goes on and talks about more and more. So he had been hated and mistreated by the Jews. So it's significant that he says, I'm so grieved for my brothers. If I myself could be cut off for their salvation. That says a lot about the heart of Paul. And so... Nowhere do we find him ever really dogging them for how they treated him because he had Christ's spirit. So here's your next truth. A Christian filled with God's spirit will have sorrow and anguish over the loss. A Christian filled with God's spirit will have sorrow and anguish over the lost. Do you grieve over others who are lost? Those that are close to you, maybe in your family? What about those that are your enemies, so to speak? What about those that are great sinners? What about those that glorify their sin and want you to glorify their sin? Do you have anguish over them? Are you irritated by them? What about those that have great privileges? Do you have anguish over their lostness? Will you let the sins of others move you 
And will you let the judgment that hangs over them be on your mind? It's exactly what Pastor Phil is challenging us to do this year. It's no accident that the Lord has led us to study Romans, ladies, to be deeply in the gospel, to be grounded in it, because he is calling us to go out and be ambassadors, to be warriors for the kingdom of God, to storm the gates of hell, which will not prevail against us when we are armed with God's truth. And so we have to check our hearts first. If we have no concern for the lost, what does that say about how much of the Spirit of Christ is living in us? It's exactly what our pastor is challenging us on, and we need to challenge ourselves on that. And then he notes the spiritual privileges of Israel, their adoption as sons. Um, the only place in the Old Testament is Exodus 4.22, where it talks about Israel as God's firstborn. But they had the divine glory. Most people think this was the Shekinah glory that dwelt in the tabernacle in the temple. They had the covenants, which was primarily the covenant with Abraham and Moses and David. They received the law. It was a gift to have the law of God, of how they were to live. The temple worship, a way to approach God and make sacrifices when they failed. The promises of God, the patriarchs, primarily Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the human ancestry of Christ. The main point, though, in pointing out all these privileges is to show how tragic their condition was. Even though they had all these privileges, most had rejected Christ. And so here is our next truth. Spiritual privileges do not guarantee salvation. Spiritual privileges do not guarantee salvation. The Jews trusted in their privileges. So what about you? Are you trusting in your spiritual privileges? Maybe you're raised in a Christian home. Maybe you've had opportunity to study the word a lot. We all have opportunity to be a part of a great church with other believers. Are you trusting those privileges? Are you trusting Christ alone as your substitute? It's a good reminder that we need to give spiritual privileges to our children, but we have to cry out for their salvation because those privileges are no guarantee that they're going to have a personal relationship with Christ. And as a parent, that's a scary prospect because we love to control things, and what would we like to control more than anything else in their salvation? So both your children and your grandchildren, we should be crying out. Their faith has to be their own. All right, so he's talked about Israel and had a lament. Now we're going to get to the question in verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed. You see, there's the question. There's the crux of what Paul is dealing with here. All this stuff we're going to wait around in and look at is really dealing with that issue. Where is our own security? Is God's word true? For... Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they're his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children. It is the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. So Paul often uses Old Testament, and it was almost like 
Paul had an amazing ability to look at the Old Testament and interpret in light of Christ, to make those connections for us. And so he goes back to Abraham, which you remember, especially for the Jews, you know, he was the father of the Jews. So the crisis is this. If God's promises to Israel do not hold true, then there's no reason to think that his promises to you. Our security in being God's elect is at stake. And so that's why he's going to use these illustrations, okay? Um, And yes, okay, we talked about this. Okay, so the difference was divine privilege, which they had, versus the divine promise, all right? So how does he prove that God is faithful? He says, within ethnic Israel, there is a true Israel, a remnant And I love that word because I grew up with a grandmother and mother that sewed. And so I always got the concept of the remnant because you would go to the fabric store and the leftover pieces were the remnant. Okay, so that was not foreign. It might be foreign to some of you younger people, but I get that piece. A smaller portion is a remnant, not a full amount of the material. So Paul is going to argue this. And in your homework, we looked at Genesis 45, 7. God sent Joseph to Egypt to preserve a remnant. 2 Kings 19.30, Isaiah prophesies a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. Isaiah 11 said the Lord will reach out his hand a second time and reclaim the remnant left of his people. So we see that concept often throughout the Old Testament. Paul is redefining Israel. And I want to say he already did this when we did chapter 2. So in chapter 2, verse 28, this is what he said. He said, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Y'all remember when he talked about that? He already redefined Israel, who was the true Jew, so to speak. Paul's main point is to defend God's character and his word so we can trust him. And then he uses um, some Old Testament stories that we are familiar with, how God is sovereign in choosing a people for himself. Now, when we think of God as sovereign, planning, choosing, bringing about his own will and purpose alongside man's own choosing and responsibility in that choosing, we come up against some mysteries that we can't fully reconcile or comprehend. All we can do is search the whole of scriptures and acknowledge what it does teach, okay? Now, in this section, there are two primary views in Romans. Number one is that God here is not speaking of individuals. He's speaking of nations. It's about God choosing Israel as a nation through whom he would bless the world. The other view is that God um, is speaking of individuals, of him choosing individuals, those that he will save to be his own people. So first, he starts with Abraham and Isaac. So just keep that. And very smart people, much more intelligent and knowledgeable of the Bible, have different views on that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of just present both of those ways, and we'll walk through this together. So first, he prevents, presents Abraham and Isaac. Now, 
Um, let's talk about the story of Abraham just briefly. In Genesis 12, God came to Abraham, called Abraham to leave his country, and he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. He's already older. He's, his wife is barren. He has no children. Abraham believes God. It's credited to him as righteousness. Then we get to Genesis 15, and he says, you know, that's the covenant scene. And he says, um, what will you give me? Because Eleazar is going to be my heir. And he says, no, a son from your own body is going to come. So he redefines it a little more, a son from your own body. So he has no, he has no children still. Then 10 years later, um, they've been in the promised land 10 years. He's 85 by now. And Sarah gets the great idea. Okay, God's going to give you a son. It's going to come from your own body. Obviously, I'm not, it's not happening with me. Take Hagar, who was an Egyptian, uh, a slave they probably got in Egypt, and take her as your second wife or concubine or whatever, have a child, and it'll be counted as my child. That was a common thing in that culture. So he goes along with it and has Ishmael, okay, um, thinking that this is how God is going to fulfill what he said. And then we move along, and then we get to 17, and God comes and says, you're going to have a son by Sarah. And Abraham's like, but if Ishmael can live under the covenant, and God, I love how God just says, yes, but, and just goes on and says, Isaac, because Isaac was the child of the promise. Isaac was the child that came by God's power, not by man's effort. And that's a big theme that Paul makes both here in Romans and in Galatians, that it's, it's what you do for God or it's what God does for you. And I think that's significant as we're walking through God choosing and God bringing about salvation because it is a child of the promise, okay? So the promised chosen people are going to come through Isaac. And so, obviously, this can support national election, that he's talking about the nation of Israel because it was the nation of Israel that came through Isaac, okay? But then someone might make the argument, well, Obviously, God chose Isaac because Hagar wasn't even a Jew. That's why it was Isaac, because it was the pure line is why it was chose. So he gives another example. And this example is where both the mother and the father are Jews, but there's twins. And God, once again, chooses. So let's start in verse 10. Not only that, so you see now he's, he's adding to his argument but Rebekah's children, Rebekah was Isaac's wife, had one and the same father, our father Isaac. So the chosen line went through Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah. Rebekah had Esau first and then Jacob. They were twins, okay? So they had the same father and mother, no distinction there at all. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I, have, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So, before they did anything good or bad, what that teaches is the quality of the choosing, the quality of the election, and it's called unconditional election. It's not based on what they do. That's the argument that Paul's making here, that it was unconditional. They had not done anything good or bad. 
The older will serve the the younger. Jacob was second born, but he became the chosen line. Now here in verse 11, the word election is introduced. So why does it say that God chose? He says, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. Ephesians 1.11 says, He works all things after the counsel of his will. So everything that God does is according to his own will. It originates with him. It's done by him. It terminates ultimately on him. And Romans 12 here in chapter 9 says, Not by works, but by him who calls. It's very significant. Paul makes that argument, especially with the Jews, because they are... They work. They think they can make their way to God. But it's by him who calls. We saw in Romans 8, 29, and 30 that those God foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified and he glorified. We see that calling is a key, but more important, it is him who calls. Not by works but by him who calls. It all centers on God. God's election is based on him. So your truth is, the ultimate ground of election is God. The ultimate ground of election is God himself. He is free and sovereign in election. He is not bound by any choice of man. Now, why is that significant? Because what is his purpose? Y'all remember the verse that's kind of a running theme in Romans? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's all about his glory. It originates with him and it's accomplished through him. A huge part of God's glory is that he is free to do whatever he wants. He is not bound by anything that we do unless he chooses to limit himself. He is ultimately not bound by anything we do. That is a huge part of his glory. So here we see the older will serve the younger. Now, there is no record of Esau serving Jacob. Therefore, this is another argument for the fact that these are two nations. Okay? Edom was the nation that came from Esau. Okay, and they became Israel's enemy. Um, when Esau, uh, let, well, actually, David um, conquered and forced them into labor. When he came in, the Edomites, Esau's descendants, the Edomites. And later, they raided Judah after it fell to the Babylonians. So after they raided Judah after it fell to the Babylonians, God pronounced judgment on them in Jeremiah 49. And he declared Edom would be a wasteland. And that's where we get the Malachi quote. So let's go to Malachi. Because the Jacob I loved, Esau I hated came from Malachi. Okay? So um, let's look at Malachi 1, 2 through 5. That's the very last book in the Old Testament. The very last book in the Old Testament. And, and the prophet Malachi came to God's people who had become very complacent after they, uh, maybe about 10 years after they came back from the Babylonian captivity. 
and they had just their worship was anemic it it was it was not true or strong and and they had just just really I guess because they hadn't seen great blessings from God coming back into the land, they became very, uh, like I said, anemic in their worship. So let's look at where Paul pulls this quote. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? I mean, we're not having this great time. We're back in the land. We're not getting all the goodies. How have you loved us? I'm thinking, how often do I have a tendency? I won't say that to God, but. And he says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, see, there's the nation, Edom, that he's really bringing judge, talking about here that came from Esau. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we'll rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. See, they were wicked people. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. So he's using this quote of this judgment against Edom. And once again, there's support then for this is talking about God's choosing of nations. Okay? But remember... Romans is a letter that is organized by arguments. So let's think about what makes sense. This entire letter has been about what God has done in making a way for sinners to receive his righteousness and be justified. That alien righteousness that we can't have on our own. God became the substitute through Christ for us, and we receive this righteousness by faith, just like Abraham we, we saw that in chapter 4. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, the beginning of chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. All of this has to do with individual salvation, not nations. So the question arises, did God keep his promises to the Jews? Paul answers by arguing that it was never all the ethnic Jews that received the promises of God, but those he chose and those who responded in faith, the remnant. So honestly, to me, it doesn't make sense that Paul now would shift to talking about God choosing nations. That just doesn't fit to me. Even though I see the support for that argument, which I've tried to put forth to y'all. How does that give me personal security? That, he'll, that he's going to keep his promises to me in my salvation in the fact that I've been reconciled to him and I'm adopted as his child. If salvation is God's work, if it's God's work, then I have supreme security because it doesn't depend on me. That's the foundation. That gives me supreme security if it's God's work. Those he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified. I mean, if you look for it, you're going to see God's work through this whole book. And while God chose the nation of Israel, it always came down to the individuals that responded in faith. Now, in Malachi, he is arguing for his love for Jacob. Um, Edom was wicked. They deserved wrath. We saw that. But I also want to read you some more, okay? 
back, still in Malachi. I want to read you. And, and, and he walks through Judah being unfaithful and the things that they've done. They've married foreign gods. They've wearied the Lord with their sacrifices. They've brought weak sacrifices. They've, they've not given the first fruits to God. All these details. But in verse 6, God says, I, the Lord, do not, 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change. So you descendants of Jacob are not destroyed. Okay? And then he goes on in 13, and he says, because remember, here's, here's his grace. What I want you to see is despite how they responded, he is arguing for his love, and he is still pursuing them, and he's calling them to repentance. He says, I haven't destroyed you yet. And then in 13, you have said harsh things against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? I guess mourn, how they were supposed to mourn for their sin. But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. So they're not seeing the benefit of relationship with God. Because they're not really just looking for the relationship with God. They're not looking just for the love relationship. Not unlike the older son in the prodigal son story who was all put out because of the mercy to the younger son. And it was so key that the father said, you've always been with me. He's like, where's my ring and my robe and my fatty calf? He said, you've always been with me. But you see, that's not what the older son wanted, the relationship. He wanted the stuff. That's where Judah was. And yet God is arguing for his love, that love relationship. And so look what he says in regard to Israel here. He says in verse 16, and this is where you see those that have a true heart for God, not just the ethnic people. They're like, well, have you done this for us? You can just hear it in their, in their questions. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. And a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I wake up, when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, those who serve God and those who don't. They will be mine in the day when I make up my treasured possession. You see, there is a special treasured possession. And as a matter of fact, um, in 1 Peter 2, 9, this is what we see that God says about us. As in measure, his treasured possession. This is how he words it in the NIV. He says... But you are a chosen people. This is speaking to Christians. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may, and for what reason? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
These are those who by faith have come to him in a personal relationship. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see how it's just this flow of the, the mercy and love of God pursuing and drawing his people back to himself, calling unfaithful Israel and Malachi to repent, his promise to those who fear his name and honor him. Ultimately, it's God's undeserved mercy and grace that prevails. It's just so powerful to see that. And we're going to see that as just a running theme. We've already seen it. We're going to see it all through these difficult chapters that we're trying to navigate of what all this means. I want you to look for God's mercy and his grace. Now, that does not discount our responsibility. And we're going to see that more and more as we move through these chapters. But no matter where you land in your view about God choosing, whether you think it's a national thing, whether you think it's a personal thing, whether you see as God looking down and deciding, he sees who's going to choose him, I do want to say if that's your view, then you're making it all dependent upon man, that man's choosing is the ground of your salvation. So I just want to throw that out there. But wherever you land, whatever view Take it far enough, and you're going you're gonna to end at a mystery. There's no view that solves all the mystery of God's sovereign choosing that the Bible teaches and our responsibility to respond and choose him. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. This is a very significant verse to hang on to when you do what we're doing as far as searching out the deep things of God. 29, 29 of Deuteronomy. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. That, the purpose, we may follow all the words of this law. And so it goes back to that point that I made at the key. It's not what you don't understand about God. Are you living up to what you do know? May we grab hold of the things revealed, ladies, the undeserved love, mercy, and grace of the king of the universe. And may we stand on it. May we think on it. May we gaze on it. May we find hope in it. All those things that we need because that is exactly the God that has loved us and called us to be his own. Let's pray. God, we stand in awe of the way you love us. Lord, the depth and the breadth and the height and the steadiness and the richness, it's a love that we don't understand, but we are so grateful. We are so grateful for the way that you love us. Help us to never be women that says, how have you loved us? God, may we not say that even subconsciously. May we rest in the glories of of your steadfast love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.